0: Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM, as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. Well, I think it's safe to say we're living in the 2020s, just kicking off what we've started a really awesome year already with augmented reality. And this was at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. And I was having a look, you know, there was a lot that was kind of going on when it came to AR and VR. But one that really stood out actually was a China-based company, and it was called... AmGlass and they were showing off their new augmented reality wearable. So you're kind of thinking well what, what does this look like? Well it featured two cameras and they were mounted just at the sides of each lens as well as an RGB camera which was mounted in the middle of the frame. And this type of an enhanced camera array could better accuracy compared to all the competitors out there when it comes to spatial mapping and overall tracking. So what is what's around you and how's the AR, the augmented reality, going to work with that. Also, there was a there was a similar kind of a wearable, which was called the Nreal Light. But the AMGLASS wearable boasts 52 degrees of a field of view and it operates using a tether that only connects a small mobile computing unit instead of this massive big computer. Now, when it comes to specs, this was quite surprising because normally they've got, you know, they've got specs, but it's usually pretty minimal. Uh, But when it comes to this particular AMGLASS, it has a Qualcomm Snapdragon 835 chip, which is, you know, that's okay. It's using Android 7.1, but it has 4 gigabytes of RAM. Now, let's just put this in perspective. About, I don't know, 4 or 5 years ago, 4 gigs of RAM was pretty average for a laptop. So, this is a big step. Additionally, it's got a 1080p resolution, a GPS, gyroscope, magnometer, wireless connectivity, as well as a wired connection through USB 3.1. So all these kind of the software and the hardware features, that combine to give the AMGLASS the ability to provide the wearer a slam. And you're probably thinking, what is a slam? Well, a slam is a simultaneous localization and mapping. It also has six degrees of freedom, which means uh, along with gestures, voice recognition, it's got a little built-in stereo mic, it's got object recognition and image recognition. It all adds up to a very capable piece of kit plus it has removable lenses for personal prescription users. So another area which Amglass competes with its competitors is its lightweight. And I mean this is really where it just steals the show. It's 88 grams. It's super light. But Amglass comes at a price selling for $1099. Now, that's actually not too bad when you compare it to other VR AR headsets. But, uh, you know, there's no word on a cheaper consumer version that we're going to be getting. So we're just going to have to see how this one sells. And I have a feeling it's going to sell pretty well. But there's one problem with all these VR headsets. And it's that they still look like VR headsets. And it's almost like these big glorified ski goggles. And they're going to shut you off from the rest of the world. But, Panasonic at CES brought some VR glasses. And they injected a bit of design. Now, some people might not like the design, but it's a modern steampunk, aviator-style goggles. And uh, personally, I think they look pretty awesome. But what's the tech inside? Well, it has micro-OLED panels, co-developed by both Panasonic and Coppin. So as a result, they're pretty high resolution with almost no hint of screen door effect that plagues most VR hardware. Uh, they're also the first VR goggles to support HDR. You know HDRs as we've got TVs. It gives you a much better viewing experience. And Panasonic, they made use of their own audio technology with a headset. So it's got the Technic drivers and the earbuds providing a really good, rich, dynamic sound. And the company says it's going to use optical designs from its Lumix camera division, which Lumix cameras are usually, you've heard of the GH4, GH5, they're like the best. And they're also going to be using similar signal processing technologies, like in their TVs and their Blu ray players. However, Everything isn't perfect, as with everything. Uh, but the micro OLED panels, and they're a little bit smaller than they could have been, and that results in a little bit of a square image in the lower viewing angle than a traditional VR headset. Uh, the glasses are also apparently a little front-heavy, and they can kind of slide down your face, so that's not very good. Uh, but they did have a non-functioning prototype uh, mock-up of the envisioned final product, which solved most of these problems and it was significantly lighter and only used a single USB-C cable through the end of the one of the glasses arms. Now unfortunately Panasonic are unlikely to ever sell these glasses as a consumer product. Uh, Instead they were just pointing out to the commercial applications that are likely to spring up alongside the rollout of the 5G networks such as the virtual travel, VR sports, And then you've got Japanese companies that are talking about this sort of a thing, and it was a lot actually this year, and it's all given that there's the Olympic Games that are coming up in Tokyo. But there's the fact that the 5G services are yet to launch over there. But I think virtual travel, virtual advertising, a bit like Blade Runner, you've got these VR goggles or AR goggles on and you look around. That's definitely just around the corner. So I can see what they're talking about, especially with 5G, literally just around the corner. Now, this next part, you know, we we talk a lot about an ever-growing population around the world. And farms, they just won't be able to sustain all of that. But what if you could bring the farm into your kitchen? I know that's a little bit of an outlandish concept, but LG has revealed a new home appliance at the CES 2020 in Vegas that does literally that. Uh, They demonstrated an experimental new kind of, uh, it's like a refrigerator uh, appliance that's meant to grow food instead of just storing it. Now, they're still working on a final name, but uh, there was a lot of things that describe it as an indoor cultivating machine or a column garden, but I mean... This is the first thing. When I saw this, I immediately thought of that one Back to the Future scene. You know, Marty's in 2015, which was the future, and his mum's kind of hydrating a pizza from Pizza Hut, and it kind of like expands into this full-size thing. And the Marty's mum pulls down this garden uh, in the kitchen. It's a full fresh garden inside the home so i just thought it was funny that literally from the film but we see that a lot you know you see something in the movies and then it becomes a reality later it's a bit like star trek predicted ancestry.com with their kind of checking through they had an episode where they had this person they had to find out what relatives were still alive and they kind of went on the computer. Very interesting. So I'm hoping we see some kind of a back to the future reference. But looking at the outside, uh, the appliance, it looks just like I said, like a conventional refrigerator, but it has a see-through glass panel. Now, inside there are four vertical trays, and that's meant for growing the vegetables and the leafy greens, which LG says will be sufficient to feed a family of four. Now, LG says the appliance that's intended to give people access to healthy vegetables year-round which could be really useful. I mean, you think about those regions and they've got seasons that might not quite work for growing certain vegetables. Like, greens can be very hard to come by in those areas. So LG's Dang Song said, with more and more consumers these days living vegetarian and vegan lifestyles, it was important for us to contribute to this trend. Which, I mean, if you think about it, this is 100% true. There's a large amount of the population that's moved over to these vegan and gluten-free lifestyles, so... Buying special kind of packet food, you know, it's, it's not great, but growing it, that'd be pretty good for you. Now, he went on to say that our first indoor gardening solution represents a new paradigm for LG in home appliances, offering a way for consumers to eat well while providing the joy of growing their own food. And again, like I said, this is so true. For most of the world's population around major cities, you know, there is no space. You hear about New York City, you've got the rooftop gardens. I think they've even got something like that in San Francisco, but you know, for a fresh natural garden in a very, very small space, this is definitely a solution. Now, there's no release date, again, this is CES, it's more seeing what's going to come out in a couple of years' time. But for something like this, uh, this needs kind of a little bit of a competitor to push things forward. And Samsung, they announced their own ambitious new refrigerator, which is AI-driven, and it's able to monitor grocery levels. So, if something's running low in your fridge, uh, well, it suggests potential new recipes based on the current ingredients. So maybe, you know, competition happening, maybe this might actually get released a little quicker, a little sooner to the public. But there's a lot of other alternatives starting to emerge, uh, and there's a lot of questions remaining about what role vertical farms are going to play into the future of agriculture. And there was a thing called Planticube, which was a smart hydroponic indoor farm, and it could possibly be the answer as well, uh, made by a company called N-Thing, The growing system is modular enough to work in a number of different settings, from an apartment to a cafeteria, and automated enough so that pretty much anybody can use it. Like other vertical farms out there, plants, they don't just rely on soil and human hands for cultivating them, but instead on a computerized system that delivers the right recipe of nutrients, water, and light from LEDs to help photosynthesis. So that means that humans are going to have very little involvement with the actual growing process of the plants but most of the farm works on just adjusting the leds like i said controlling temperatures humidity monitoring plant health and it's all done by this PlantCube cube system now leo kim who's the ceo of nthing came up with the idea for the farm after creating an internet of things enabled smart pot called planty so it allowed people to connect multiple cubes kind of these squares a bit like lego blocks to grow larger crops and i mean if you put enough of these together you could end up making a planty cube farm so could this mark the end of the green veggie section at your local food shop Well, I mean, it's definitely possible and it could be kind of a a prediction into the future. Probably I'd say late 2030, we're going to see this really go full blast. Uh, But I think it's more convenience because people would rather have fresh vegetables in their house. That means not going out using your car. Overall, being less wasteful and getting way more fresh food. So this next interesting thing that I found at CES, I mean, let's start with, you may have heard of ABO, and you may have not heard of ABO, but it was Sony's attempt at a robo-dog. Well, cat lovers, they never got a cat variant, but the wait is over. Finally, it has arrived. It's called Mars Cat, and it's made by Elephant Robotics, and it looks a little bit more, it looks like a cat but a little bit with a Terminator-ish twist to it. It kind of seems as if Elephant Robotics is trying to give Mars Cat a lot of cat-like mannerisms. I mean, it can apparently do things like at toys, stretch its two front feet out, and even accept chin rubs. Marscat comes in white, grey, ginger, and black, and it's outfitted with six capacitive touch sensors, a five megapixel camera in its nose to help it see, and it's powered by a Raspberry Pi 3. Elephant Robotics says you'll be able to get two to three hours of battery life with constant interactions, and up to five hours for low usage. So, you know, Marscat might be lying down or just sitting while it's still powered on then obviously you'd get a bit more battery life. If you want, you can actually change the behaviors of MarsCat yourself. Uh, They said that you'll be able to program actions for using it in an open API. And it's, like I said, it's got Raspberry Pi on it. At the moment, there isn't a place where developers can upload and share their programmed actions. But it looks like when it gets closer to the time of shipping, uh, it's gonna probably come up on the website. If you want, you can actually back MarsCat It'll only cost you $649. And by the way, that was only for the first 100 backers. Uh, The cost is going to go up in increasing amounts depending on how many people have already backed it. Now, if you're one of those first 100, Elephant Robotics estimates they'll deliver the Mars Cat in March of this year. So really quite soon. And later backers are probably going to get theirs in late 2020. But when Mars Cat officially goes on sale next year, Elephant Robotics says it's going to cost 1300 and that seems quite expensive, and trust me, I did a little bit of a look into this. I thought, is this kind of normal? Is this what these robo pets go for? Well, we look at the Sony ABO, guess how much that costs? $2,899.99. But the real question is, is this going to catch on? And in my opinion... Definitely not, I mean we're humans, we're made of machine and metal, so although you can program flaws and little characteristics into RoboPets, it will not compare to the real thing. Now I'm not a cat owner... But I do have a wiener dog, and nothing can replace him. There's just those unexpecting things that our little friends do that kind of make us laugh and love them all the more. But I believe the AI robots and humans will definitely get along. But rather, it's going to start in a task-collaborative way than an emotion kind of like these first robo-pets. But talking a little bit more about robots now you know sometimes you're in a rush you've got to go to work there's a lot of traffic sometimes you have to leave early you really don't have time to cook breakfast and you wish you had some extra arms to do it all at once well i've got good news for you samsung has solved that problem Now, what they've made, this is really interesting, they have made a robotic system that hangs two white arms down from the ceiling to be able to reach into kitchen ingredients, stir pots and pans, and basically make your food. It's called the Bot Chef. Now, like nearly all the major technology companies, Samsung, they're making this big push to artificial intelligence. And the ultimate promise for AI is to predict what you'll want before you even want it. Now, the CES in January 2019 last year, uh, Samsung they showed off four different types of robots for consumers, and that included Bot Air, and that was for air purification, Bot Care, which was for health monitoring, Bot Retail for restaurants and shops, and GEMS or Gems, which was short for Gate enhancing and motivating systems to help people with mobility issues. And at the time Samsung said the robot was just for research and they didn't really have a timeline on when they would actually launch them. Now Samsung has first showed the cooking robot at the kitchen and bath industry show which was Earlier, you know last year and it was at that time it said it was striving to eliminate the tedium and inconveniences of our everyday lives freeing up our time and energy for more enjoyable tasks and that got me again thinking you know of a film if you remember that film with adam sandler called click and he kind of was skipping through all the the boring stuff in his life just to kind of experience all the enjoyable stuff and obviously i'm not going to spoil the film but it was kind of showing that maybe it's sometimes not good to skip everything so maybe these kind of tedious and inconvenient things for us today might in the future seem like the enjoyable tasks but getting back to the device now it works like an extra pair of hands in the kitchen so if you want it to stir a pot of soup well you just download the stirring skill and then all a chef really needs to do is just talk to the robot to issue a command so samsung says that boss chef can autonomously understand the location of objects so the user can tell it you know find a spoon and which pot to stir so the robotic manipulator has six degrees of freedom which is kind of the sweet spot with the same diameter and reach of a human arm its sensors and ai algorithms let it work alongside a real person even when they get in each other's way and i know what you're thinking what if it's cutting something with a really sharp knife you know, if you put your hand under this it, it going to slice your finger? Well, somebody did actually try and do that. They tried to put their hand near where the knife was and it stopped cutting. It totally lifted the knife up and work ceased. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for future forecasts with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Moving over into transportation, you'll remember last year we talked about how automakers, they would start to combine home living spaces with cars. Well, to kickstart that, BMW, they took their i3, which is their low electric car, and created an urban suite concept. And just like the name says, it's a mobile suite that kind of has this boutique city hotel vibe to it. Now, the car uses medium blue fabrics, nicely grained wood without a hint of high gloss varnish, a drop-down infotainment screen, and a sliding ottoman for the passenger's legs. And it all works because there's no right front seat. It's poof, it's gone. And the left rear seat is replaced by a wooden shelf, which has kind of this little mushroom lamp on it. So the urban suite is kind of like a placeholder for what EVs are gonna be coming out later in the year. It also comprises of software that could help create a public or private ride hailing service in the same fashion as like, Uber or Lyft. At the same time BMW was showing this at the CES 2020, the kinds of ideas that they were looking at, they're all kind of focused around transportation in the city. But let's go back to the little i3 urban suite, because from the outside, it looks just like a regular i3, with kind of a little bit of a slick, multi-tone paint job and the words urban suite. Now, the i3 was actually BMW's first mass-production EV, and it helped BMW pioneer carbon fibre production techniques. It's been available since 2014, and BMW obviously suggests that the i3 is the best in its pure EV form, which has a range up to 153 miles so about half of the i3 sold in the us though they had this range extender which was the small gasoline engine had a tiny little gas tank and that kind of doubled the range and if you want an i3 you can buy them they're about fifty thousand dollars which means it costs more or less the same as a chevy bolt ev But the Bolt doesn't have the carbon fibre or the BMW logo. Now, the urban suite is done up with the environment in mind. So there's a lot of recycled materials that go into the fabrics, upholstery. I mean, even the wood is from certified forests. Uh, And what leathers are there? Well, they're all olive tanned. Uh, there's a circular economy floor mats so that means that the recycled materials can be recycled again but you know bmw they converted a couple dozen of the i3s into urban concept cars and brought them all to las vegas and people you know you could go and get a demo ride as a private lift or uber style ride hailing service uh there was only one passenger obviously because the car drove itself and it had a lot of space nice legroom headroom and since the back seats are kind of canted backwards, it's got a slight recline to it. And in the mainstream, you know, the i3, the back seat's pretty snug and it's pretty upright. So the car's five inches shorter than a Honda Fit. So you can kind of get an idea for that. And the large LCD display, which is inside, pivots down and provides an entertainment for your own device. So you could stream, you know, BMW's Connect, or you could use maybe Apple CarPlay obviously it's too good to be true so unfortunately it's not going to be going up for sale to the public but if it ever did go to the market it would be a big hit and especially would be a hit for executives rock stars maybe even chefs or maybe somebody who wants to feel a little bit fancy and get driven around town But this is not the car for clubbing because, you know, if you pick somebody up, they'll have to go in a separate car or ride on your lap because obviously the other chair that was normally in the car is a lamp. But it's pretty clear that there was nothing that came close to the i3 in kind of a cool factor sense. Uh, BMW used the show to talk about the future of luxury transportation and the concept of spacious seating in cars that might not have a steering wheel or other controls. But what's most important about this, this is a step in the right direction. Vehicle interiors are definitely heading this way because with no driver that means there's new regulations and that means no steering wheel and possibly more options for automakers to make these mobile suites. So the future of personal living could possibly change I mean, imagine, what if we have these mobile apartments, mobile suites, for really dense, expensive cities. Talking about something that we knew would happen again on future forecast, Uber has been aiming at running a flying car service called Uber Elevate for quite some time now. Now, the thing is, it looks like they're probably a little bit more serious than ever because they partnered with Hyundai's Urban Air Mobility, or the UAM division, to develop a practical concept vehicle for an air taxi. According to Hyundai's press release, this concept was created in part through Uber's open design process, a NASA-inspired approach that jumpstarts innovation by publicly releasing vehicle design concepts to stimulate innovation industry-wide. And in the partnership, Hyundai will produce and deploy the air vehicles and Uber will provide the aerospace support services, connections to the ground transportation and customer interfaces through an aerial ride-sharing network. So both parties, they're collaborating on the infrastructure concepts to support takeoff and landing of this whole new class of vehicles. Jiwon Shin, who's the executive vice president and the head of Hyundai's urban air mobility said, our vision of air mobility will transform the concept of urban transportation. We expect UAM to vitalize urban communities and provide more quality time to people. We're confident that Uber Elevate is the right partner to make this innovative product readily available to as many customers as possible. Now, Hyundai and Uber, they call the electric vertical takeoff and landing or the VTOL aircraft. S-A1, and say it utilizes innovative design processes to optimize energy vertical takeoff and landing, or eVTOL aircraft, for aerial ride-sharing purposes. The S-A1 has been conceived along the lines that Ubers developed in previous concepts. I mean, just looking at the figures from Hyundai, they said it's designed for a cruising speed of 180 miles an hour, its cruising altitude of about 1 to 2,000 feet above the ground, And the flight trips are around 60 miles. So Hyundai says the vehicle is going to be 100% electric, utilizing distributed electric propulsion during peak hours and will require about five to seven minutes for recharging. Hyundai's electric aircraft utilizes distributed electric propulsion, powering multiple rotors and propellers around the airframe to increase safety and decreasing any single point of failure. Having several smaller rotors also reduces the noise related to large rotor helicopters with combustion engines, which is very important especially around cities. So the model is designed to take off vertically and that transitions to wing-borne lift in cruise and then transitions back to vertical flight to land. So the Hyundai vehicle is going to be piloted initially, but over time they'll be able to become autonomous. And the cabin, well that's designed for four passengers, so that allows riders to board, disembark easily and avoid the dreaded middle seat without enough space for personal bags or a backpack. So obviously, this marks the beginning of a new age. What Uber and Hyundai call seamless mobility. And it incorporates the latter company's purpose-built vehicle, or PBV, concept. So with that concept and related, larger idea they've dubbed the hub, it seems that Hyundai is working for an entirely new kind of commuter culture. One where personal aerial vehicles, or PAVs, and I know what you're thinking, they keep abbreviating all of them, but trust me, it makes it easier... Uh, They're all to hook on to a central locus, like a hub. So as much as that seems totally unrealistic and way off in the future, it really isn't. Uh, That sci-fi world full of flying vehicles that so many people dream about, I mean, it really is coming to be a reality. And there's still no specific timeline on Uber Elevate's actual launch date or what it might cost to purchase one of these vehicles, but most likely Uber or one of the other large ride-sharing services will debut these in the first place they can actually get approval. I mean, something like New York City helicopter tour pads. That could work, but I guess we'll just have to see what happens first. So let's go back to talk about cars and what would be even better than just having an electric car? Well, you know, you're not paying for gas, which is pretty nice, but what about not needing to charge? That would be even better. Now, believe it or not, there is actually a car that's heading into production called the Lightyear One and is totally all about efficiency. It has a drag coefficient of below 0.20 which is really low seriously low and actually it's very close to the gm the general motors ev1 which was 0.19 and the vw xl1 which was 0.185 and i know these numbers probably think well okay what's what's so important about them but the lower the drag coefficient the more likely you're going to be able to travel way further on a single charge than you would if you had a super high drag coefficient like a jeep wrangler but an important thing to note is the GM EV1 and the XL1, they were both only two-seater. Like, they were only two-door cars. This light year one, this is a four-seater, four-door. The company representatives at CES, they explained that their plan was to begin low-volume production next year at their facility in Helmand in the Netherlands with customer deliveries in 2021. So it's very soon. And they said that they would be limited to making a little over a thousand copies but the plan would be to eventually secure a proper manufacturing plant, perhaps with the help of a lot of partners, to make the vehicle in a higher volume for the future. Now, the light year one, let's talk a little bit about the actual car, because the unique part about this isn't just the drag coefficient. It has five square meters of solar panel surface, and it can generate roughly five to six kilowatts of electricity, per day under the right conditions obviously and because the vehicle's super lightweight and it's extremely aerodynamic that's good enough per day of just solar to propel the vehicle about 45 miles now Lightyear says that the consumption will be as low as 135 watt hours per mile which converts to about 7.5 miles per kilowatt which is really good Uh, for any ev actually that's really very efficient And because the car is so efficient, it can put a smaller battery pack than competitors and get a really big long driving range. Lightyear 1 is going to have a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack, which offers an estimated 450 miles of range based on the WLTP range rating system. Now, to just put this in perspective, the Model 3 has a 55 kilowatt hour battery pack, so not that much smaller, and that gets about 250 miles range. So 450 over just a five kilowatt hour increase, that's pretty massive. Now, obviously, when it translates to the EPA range rating scale, it's probably going to be more like 400 miles, but that's a big difference. It's almost nearly double. Uh, The vehicle isn't going to be a high performance dragster. Uh, The zero to 60 time is 10 seconds, and that's not the point. The point is efficiency. And the Lightyear 1 actually has four lightweight in-wheel motors for propulsion. And the battery can DC fast charge at a rate of 60 kilowatts and up to 22 kilowatts on AC. However, because of its ability to recharge from the sunlight, Lightyear representatives say that the average customer may only need to charge the car once or twice per month. Because the Lightyear 1 has a long, low-slung, sloping roofline, the vehicle doesn't have a rear-view mirror for the driver, so instead it uses a rear-view camera and a little screen so you can see out the back. Now there's other cars that offer rear-view mirrors. But, uh, like, you know, you've got the Chevy Bolt EV, but those you can toggle on and off. That's not possible in the Lightyear one because there is totally no outward vision. They have to rely totally on the video camera. And since Lightyear is using very expensive materials like carbon fiber, aluminum, combined with the fact that the vehicle initially will be made in a super low volume, it's not that cheap. It's quite expensive. It costs about $170,000 US dollars. And if you're interested, you can reserve on Lightyear's website with a $4,500 refundable deposit. So we've seen, you know, Tesla's Cybertruck getting options for solar charging, but you know, this is gonna be the future of EVs. And another thing, as we better solar technology, you know, it gets developed over time at an increasing rate, we're gonna to get to the point where EVs will have an infinite range during daylight. Now, imagine what that would do in combination with the autonomous driving. The possibilities are pretty massive. So you'd think after EVs started taking off the electronic companies, they'd start getting on the bandwagon and join in. Well, it just so happens that in the beginnings of 2020, we're now starting to see that. In a surprise move earlier, you know, at CES, Sony unveiled a prototype smart car called the Vision S. Now it's a high-tech vehicle and it comes loaded with sensors and you can see that the car's surroundings, it's got a massive infotainment system and the ability to detect a driver's alertness level I mean, it's really got a whole bunch of futuristic features. But as much as this sounds like a futuristic haven, Sony's quite far behind being the first company to experiment with bringing all this technology into a car. But the announcement shows that there's all these technology giants and they're putting an increasing push into the automotive industry, which obviously they hope they're gonna be able to make a lot of money. And it could potentially be the next major wave of computing. I mean, automotive technology, it's always been a major theme at CES, but most of the announcements, the concept vehicles and flashy demos that come from like industry leaders like Ford, Toyota, Honda, I mean, you don't see that coming from Sony or something like that. Like Sony is best known for its deep roots in entertainment, consumer electronics, and as we talked about. Abo, which is like a robo-dog, you don't expect them to come out with a car. And yet, Sony's Vision S bridges the two worlds. It's a prototype with smart features geared towards safety, comfort, and entertainment that the company hopes to test on the roads later in 2020. The vehicle has 33 sensors located on the interior and exterior providing driving assistance and monitoring for the well-being of the drivers and the passengers in the car as well as cameras for example that can alert the driver about nearby pedestrians even before they can see them. Now Sony's spatial audio system will also be installed in each individual seat within the car with a giant panoramic screen. And this is able, you know, you can watch a, a nice movie and or a TV show, and it kind of replaces the whole dashboard deal in normal cars. So all of that said, while it was certainly unexpected for them to launch a car, it didn't completely come out of nowhere. Now, there's a few important reasons why they're pushing even more deeply into the automotive sector and why it kind of makes sense for Sony. First of all, audio and camera technology are already making their way into vehicles, so Creating a prototype car for its own is, in some ways, a natural expansion on those efforts. So take you know certain cars from Ford, you've got the Fiesta, the Fusion, the Taurus. Sony's premium audio technologies, they could be built in pretty easily, so you can see how it works for them. Now, the company announced in 2018 that it was commercializing its image sensing for automotive use, And a prototype like the Vision S seems like the culmination of a myriad of ways Sony and its products can already kind of combine into a car. And then, of course, there's the broader notion that the technology companies are becoming increasingly involved in what the future of the car will actually look like. We know that Apple and Google already enable drivers to mirror their smartphone in their car's inbuilt display for their CarPlay or Android Auto services. And then you've got Amazon's Alexa that can be found in cars like Ford, Audi, Toyota, and even Amazon. They've announced new integrations with Rivian and Lamborghini at CES as well. So this is all happening right now. But beyond the services they offer today, both of these tech giants are thinking about how the car will change over the coming years. Apple's rumoured, obviously, to be working on a software platform for self-driving cars, while Google's parent company, Alphabet, has been working on an autonomous driving technology for years through its Waymo subsidiary. And we can't talk about all these companies without mentioning Samsung, because they too have made some announcements at CES regarding autonomous vehicles, showcasing technology that could be one day helping cars communicate with city infrastructure around them. So, there's a couple of good reasons why the car could be a prime candidate for all these silicon giants. Uh, the first is the industry for connected and self driving cars. I mean, that's expected to grow over the next three years. And the worldwide self driving market is expected to generate 173.15 billion in revenue. So it makes sense. Tesla's got the Robotaxi, which is coming out. People are going to be able to make money off their Model 3s going up and picking people up. So having more tech companies getting in to offer people more options besides Tesla it's a pretty obvious opportunity but both technology and automotive companies are thinking about how the role of the car is going to change once they no longer require a driver to sit behind the wheel. CES was filled with concepts from LG, Toyota, Hyundai, Byton and others that imagine vehicles that can be used in a variety of purposes from deliveries, retail experiences, to providing just entertainment. Uh, LG, for example, was showcasing a futuristic concept that probably is not going to hit the road until 2030. And it had a massive OLED TV and even a dry cleaning station that could press your clothes while you're in transit. So the Vision S, it's Sony's take on what the car of the future should look like, and it's centered around entertainment, audio and safety. And since many people, you know, the future is self-driving and sensor-equipped cars have been shown already at CES, we're getting out of the concept phase and we're going to start seeing a more prototype phase. So things like the Sony Vision S and the LG's connected car, it's kind of telling what's going to be happening for next CES and that's going to be a really big one. 2021 CES, you're going to see a lot more technology companies put together prototype EVs. So this announcement from Sony is going to indicate that there's going to be a big tech giant war battling for the coveted space inside your car and eventually your whole car. Now, this next story is bittersweet. We all remember the GM EV1, and it was and still is ahead of the time. It had a really low drag coefficient, a very high efficiency motor. It really was an amazing EV. And as we all know, it was too good to be true, and they all got crushed. General Motors chose a different vehicle, and it was the more profitable option, and it was called the Hummer. Now, that brand, that hasn't been around for over a decade and GM's bankruptcy in the late 2000s with the rising fuel, it meant that the brand was no longer sustainable, so it was discontinued pretty soon after introduction. But now, it might be returning with an EV1 heart. Apparently, General Motors has hired three-time NBA champion LeBron James to promote the new Hummer-branded pickup, which it plans to air a commercial at the Super Bowl in February. So this truck, which is estimated to hit showrooms in early 2022, It's going to be built in small numbers, and it's going to be aimed more at off-road enthusiasts. But if we have a little history trip, as part of General Motors' bankruptcy announcement in 2009, the company revealed it was going to discontinue the Hummer brand, since it had failed at selling the nameplate to its Chinese company in 2010. The Hummer name sat unused in GM's arsenal. Despite its reputation for selling gas-guzzling, oversized megatrucks, The name still has heritage thanks to its original truck's military service. So manufacturing is said to take place at GM's Detroit Hamtrak facility, which has been retold, and apparently it's going to cost $3 billion to produce the electric trucks, fans and batteries. So funnily, after the Hummer was chosen over the GM EV1 for future potential, it looks like finally it's going to share something in common with the EV1, an electric powertrain. So at CES, we can see there's a lot of interesting concepts, but Mercedes-Benz, they did something really cool and a little bit scary, and we'll go into that. So they pulled off the wraps of their new wild concept car that was inspired by the 2009 movie Avatar. And what did they call it? The Mercedes-Benz Vision AVTR, or for short, Avatar. And it was designed with help from Avatar's director, James Cameron. So the car's not the sequel that James Cameron has kind of promised all this time. But the Avatar concept car is more of a mix of everything that Consumer Electronics has shown and a bit more in an outlandish style for a future tech kind of tied in altogether with entertainment at mind. So yes, the entire rear of the Avatar is covered in 33 discrete scales, a bit like a fish. And Mercedes calls them bionic flaps. And they say they could be used to communicate with people outside the car. It also has special spherical wheels that Mercedes says they were inspired by the seeds of the Tree of Souls from the 2009 Avatar. So the wheels can rotate so that the Avatar can move sideways or even diagonally. So imagine you want to park somewhere. Hey, no problem. Uh, like all concept cars, the Vision Avatar is meant to kind of just tease out what will be like to ride in the car of the future. And while the inside of the car is relatively sparse, Mercedes put a lot of ideas into what possibly the inside of something like the avatar could look like in the future. So that starts with new steering wheel, like we just talked about with other concepts, Autonomy, that's the future, so instead passengers, they'll just interact with the car through an oval-shaped controller that comes up out of the centre console to meet your hand. Once your hand is on the control and the seats, which can vibrate along with the pace of your breathing and heart, it tries to give you a connection of how man and machine might literally merge, and that came from Ola Kalanias, who's the chairman of mercedes benz parent company, Daimler. But as we've talked about in future forecasts, having implanted technology, it's it's not really smart and it can't be upgraded easily. But Mercedes likens this to how the Navi, which were the characters in the Avatar film, physically connect with their banshees, which was kind of like their ponytails, to animals. So once a passenger starts moving in the Avatar car, the sweeping display in front of them can light up with 3D graphics of Pandora, the fictional world from the Avatar film... And as James Cameron said later in the show, we will merge. But if flying solo through the world of Avatar isn't kind of your thing, uh, Mercedes does imagine that the Avatar will also be able to detect when a family is on board and adapt automatically. So the company didn't go too deep into what kinds of family features would kind of be in this thing, but they did say in a 23-page press release that parents will be able to monitor their children from the dashboard screen. But that shouldn't be a problem in the first place because the back seat riders have access to learning-oriented gaming, so it's a child-friendly augmented reality experience. Mercedes also spent a lot of time talking about how they designed the Vision Avatar to be sustainable. Uh, The concept car is powered by graphene-based organic battery cells that don't require rare earth minerals, which the company says may one day be compostable. So the interior is also made from recyclable plastics and vegan leather. Mercedes is definitely pushing this angle hard because like the other automakers, like BMW we were just talking about with the i3, the company is totally committed to a long-term goal of reducing its carbon footprint. But having an idea of implanting technology to interact with your vehicle, I mean, it's, that's, that's not clever. And that needs to be something that automakers really stop wasting money on. Uh, however, utilising wearable technology to connect, that'd be perfect. And that makes the concept a lot more realistic and a lot more interesting. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and have a listen, it's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So now, when we talk about space in the 2020s, we're going to experience a massive change in how we communicate with each other, especially with SpaceX's Starlink satellite constellation. I mean, there's already been multiple launches that have been completed, and the network should be online for the public at the end of 2020. And we're only now just starting to find out what the user experience for the internet service is kind of going to be like. So, Elon, he's got this very ambitious plan to build a network of satellites in the tens of thousands in numbers. And eventually, if the plan works out, it's going to deliver internet connections to pretty much anywhere on the planet, uh, nowhere that an ISP or anything could go. So, it's going to be a big improvement. Back on Earth, subscribers to Starlink, they're going to need special hardware, obviously, to get online. And SpaceX, they're not quite ready to show off the so-called Starlink terminals yet. But obviously, that hasn't stopped Elon from sharing anything early. Uh, he said that the device is going to look thin, flat, round, kind of like a UFO and a stick. So, a circular antennae on top of an extended pole, which is trying to lift it from anything that could be blocking the line of sight. So the setup should be pretty easy. Uh, Elon said that the Starlink terminal has motors to self-adjust optimal angle to the view of the sky. Removing any need for people to figure out where the constellation might be and adjust the terminal as it moves through the sky he literally said you just point it at the sky and plug it in. That's like, it's the easiest possible way to connect to the internet. Technical details for getting Starlink up and running are still one of the challenges, but SpaceX has made it very clear that it intends to launch Starlink services prior to the full completion of the Constellation, at least in North America, but the exact date is yet to be announced. Now Boeing, so we've heard about Boeing's Starliner spacecraft suffering serious setbacks during test flights and now NASA's facing a high stakes dilemma. Should the space agency require the company to repeat the uncrewed test flights and should it just allow it to go to the next flight uh, as originally planned, but that's gonna have astronauts aboard. So the answer is very important, especially when you're putting people's lives on the line. And NASA—they're already struggling to kind of resume human spaceflight from the U.S. years after the space shuttle fleet got retired back in 2011. So this forcing Boeing to redo the test flight without anybody on board—that's going to be really costly. Possibly requiring the already embattled company, which is again struggling from consequences of two deadly crashes of its 737 Max airplanes, to spend tens of millions of dollars to demonstrate this new spacecraft is capable of meeting the space station in orbit. But if NASA moved ahead with the uncrewed flight and something went wrong and put astronauts in danger, the space agency would come under withering criticism that could plague it for decades into the future. So for now, NASA they are moving very cautiously and they formed an independent team within Boeing to examine what went wrong with the Starliner during last month's test flight. NASA also is kind of reviewing the data to help determine whether the capsule achieved enough objectives during its truncated flight to assure NASA that its astronauts would be safe. And on December 20th, 2019, an Atlas V rocket lifted off from Cape Canaveral, delivering the Starliner into space. But soon after, when it was on its own, Starliner suffered a huge software bug and its onboard clock went off. 11 hours so as a result the engines that would have put on a trajectory with the space station failed to fire and while the other thrusters which are designed to keep the capsule stable did fire expended precious fuel. But Boeing officials regained control of the spacecraft and were able to complete several objectives, including maneuvering the capsule, having it communicate with the space station, and deploying the docking system to see whether it would even work in a real-life situation. But the spacecraft had consumed so much fuel to make it to the station that officials, they just had to cancel that part of the mission. So, two days after that had launched, the Starliner landed safely in the New Mexico desert, days ahead of schedule. And officials from NASA and Boeing went out of their way to highlight the things that went well during the mission. I mean, you had Jim Bridenstine, which is NASA's administrator, say, We're all very excited that a whole lot of things did go right, went very, very well, as a matter of fact. You could argue that some of the hardest parts of the mission have now been proved to be very capable but he did say the teams would have to figure out what went wrong before allowing crews on board. Docking with the space station is a really delicate endeavor and it's a key part of the program, which is designed to give NASA a way to get its astronauts there and back safely. Bridenstine said, "'I'm not saying we're going to do it, but I'm not ruling it out either." And he was obviously talking about proceeding with a crewed flight. Quote, "'Remember when we had the space shuttles? Every single one of those missions was crewed from day one. The very first time we launched the space shuttle, it had people on board. These are not things that are new to NASA, but I want to make sure we understand what the challenges were and get those fixed and make sure there's not some larger systematic problem. Some industry officials said that they think Boeing has already got a kind of clear sense of what happened and they were able to fix it without much difficulty. But if NASA does force Boeing to perform another test flight, It's not clear who would have to pay the tens of millions of dollars to do such a mission. NASA's contract with Boeing is a fixed-price contract, meaning the payments to Boeing are contingent on hitting certain milestones and the amount of those payments should not change. Boeing's contract with NASA specifically says it shall include an uncrewed orbital test flight. The International Space Station demonstrates the, quote, automated rendezvous and proximity operations and docking with the ISS, assuming ISS approval. Bridenstine did not say if he would be requiring them to pay or if NASA had ordered the additional uncrewed test flight. It's an issue that still remains unsettled, but NASA spokesman Joshua Finch said, any contractual implications would be informed by the in-depth review and analysis of data obtained from the company's uncrewed orbital flight test. NASA and Boeing would determine what additional data is required and the optimal approach for obtaining it and that we expect this process to take several weeks. NASA did say that if they had astronauts on that flight uh, with the Boeing spacecraft last month, they probably could have taken manual control of the spacecraft and flown it totally safely to the International Space Station. For the first flight cruise, NASA has chosen a pair of former military test pilots, astronauts Nicole Mann and Mike Fink. Joining them would be a former NASA astronaut, Chris Ferguson, who now works for Boeing. Between them, Fink and Ferguson have been to space more than six times, and the trio has years of experience flying all sorts of military aircraft. Scott Kelly, who's the former NASA astronaut who spent nearly a year in space, said, You couldn't have asked for a better crew for the mission. Their capability to fly this flight is not in question. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they flew the next flight with people on it. Last year, SpaceX, which was the other company contracted by NASA to fly astronauts to the ISS, successfully docked with its Dragon Crew spacecraft, and there was no issues. The company's cargo spacecraft has been to the space station about 20 times since 2012, delivering experiments and supplies. SpaceX is scheduled to test the Dragon Crew's emergency abort system probably around later this month, and they hope to fly astronauts within the next few months. And NASA knows how difficult and dangerous human spaceflight is. I mean, in 1986, it lost the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger, and seven astronauts were killed in 2003 when Columbia came apart before landing. So calculating risks is particularly difficult on new spacecraft, such as the Starliner. So overall, safety is a number one priority, and NASA are definitely not going to rush it just to meet a deadline. So, on a more positive note, we've got some news for us here on the West Coast, and it comes from Blue Origin. They've just opened their new headquarters in Kent, Washington. Now, the facility has a capacity for 1,500 people for operations, as well as research and development. Blue Origin expects to have a busy 2020 as it comes around to get the suborbital New Shepard spacecraft ready to carry humans and its works on the uncrewed Blue Moon Lander to send payloads to the lunar surface. And we know the company has formed a team with Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman and Draper to build also a crewed lunar lander for NASA's Human Artemis program. Now Blue Origin CEO Bob Smith said, We grew by a third last year and we're going to continue to grow at a rapid pace for those of you that are washington state residents what is exciting is we're going to be doing all of this work from a headquarters based here in kent it's a remarkable statement to say that we're going to fly humans to space we're going to build and design large engines and a large orbit rocket and we're going to go back to the moon all through the work centered here. The main hub is called the O'Neill building, named after Gerard O'Neill, physicist who did several studies on human settlements in space. And the building's on a 30-acre land plot, which includes 13 acres for wildlife, protection against invasive species, and flood storage. So with this really cool building, I think Blue Origin's got a very bright future, and it's really nice to see it's coming from the West Coast. So let's move over now into starship it's been a real while and over the past few weeks at the spacex's boca chica facility the team's been making a lot of progress at a pace that's quite unprecedented even for the famously agile rocket company ever since spacex's original mark one starship prototype spectacularly failed during a november 2017 pressure test The company's been rapidly rearranging and modifying and developing its schedule for the next generation of full reusable rockets. Be it a side effect or a coincidence, began closing its Florida Starship factory about a week after Mark I's demise, and even shipped some of the Florida-based Starship hardware over to Texas in the recent weeks. And it's key to note that most of the Florida workforce, it was like 80%, reportedly redirected elsewhere in the company to avoid layoffs. Most recently, SpaceX's latest steps towards demonstrating that it has substantially improved the manufacturing quality it arrived in the form of a single propellant tank. Quickly named Bopper, which is short for Baby Starhopper, the miniature Starship test article came together at a truly spectacular pace. I mean, this thing really got welded quick. Even for SpaceX, moving a prototype from factory to the test site hours after its primary structure was welded together. That represents an almost, like, this is insane, fast-paced work. Uh, truly, this is not normal for traditional aerospace. And before the dawn on January 10th, SpaceX technicians and engineers they were intentionally going to blow up this miniature Starship tank in order to test the recently upgraded manufacturing and assembly methods likely to be used on the first Starships that are going to go orbital. Now, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk quickly weighed in on Twitter later on the day, saying that the crucial details about the Starship tank test effectively were confirming that it was a success. I mean, for turnaround time of production and testing, it went really well. So Starship production is going awesome. Now, in our solar system, we have a nice big orange gas giant and it's called Jupiter. It's the biggest planet in the solar system, but it might not actually be a protector as we previously thought. Jupiter has been catching and passing rocks and kind of flinging them at Earth. Physicist Kevin Grazier and astrobiologist John T. Horner say that they have laid to rest the beliefs that Jupiter protect our inner planets. Grazier, who has actually worked for NASA, consulted on the science fiction production like Battlestar Galactica and Gravity said, quote, our simulations show that Jupiter is just as likely to send comets at Earth as deflect them away. And we've seen that in the real solar system. Warner at the University of Southern Queensland said it takes things that threaten Earth and flings them away, clearing space nearing our planet. So in that sense, it's something of a shield. On the flip side though, it takes things that come out of nowhere near Earth and flings them away, meaning it's also a threat. Icy bodies in our outer solar system known as centaurs can be pulled in by Jupiter's immense gravity and it turns them into potentially deadly comets. This was great in Earth's early years. It's believed, you know, you had these early comets, asteroids, and they were coming to Earth, bringing essentials for life. But now that we've made it a home here, it wouldn't be so great if it is now. Grazier said, We already know that Earth is in a cosmic crosshairs, so there's hundreds of near-Earth objects that potentially could be hazardous. I think now we just have to pay more attention to see what happens a bit farther away in Jupiter's neighbourhood. So, maybe having a space force to protect our planet would be something pretty obvious, but I guess we'll just have to watch and see what happens going further into 2020. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for future forecasts with Daniel Trainer" and SoundCloud. This shows broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality. Especially going into the 2020s and beyond.